Hey, good morning, faith family. I want to say hello to those in our live venue. If you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 14. Acts 14 is where we're, actually Acts 13 and 14 is where we'll be this morning. But for our scripture reading, we'll read a couple of verses out of 14. While you're turning there, uh, this morning will be the uh, conclusion of Acts part one. Uh, Lord willing, next week we'll start our Christmas series. And then uh, the plan is uh, to, in January, pick back up in the book of Acts and take a few weeks and kind of finish out the book. Now, when we started this series, we told you that it was going to challenge us individually as well as a faith family collectively to think bigger and to think wider. Uh, God's been doing an amazing work here and just continues to bring more and more people uh, to us. And so we've had our elders, our staff, uh, teams of lay people that have been working very, very hard on the issues that we've mentioned to you before, like what do we need to do to our campus here to account for the growth that we're having. Uh, we want to ultimately be a church that's meeting in multiple campuses and multiple locations. And so what's that going to look like? And uh, there hasn't been a lot to communicate because we've really been doing just a lot of research and prayer and just seeking God's will. So our plan is, when we pick back up in Acts in January, is to... Uh, to bring before you some information as to where we are in the process. We'll launch a website where you can follow the process throughout because we do want to do a great job communicating with you. And uh, so hopefully we'll get to that point in January. Keep praying for us and praise God we even get to have that conversation uh, because God is doing such a great work here. Well, let's finish Acts part one this morning with Acts 14. We're going to cover two chapters this morning. I hope you brought a lunch because there ain't nothing after you. All right, so <laughs> here we go. If you're able to stay and do so for the reading of God's word, Acts 14, we're going to read 21 and 22 because it really summarizes the whole theme of what we're going to talk about in these two chapters. Luke writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that when they had preached the gospel to that city, and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That's God's word. Let's pray. Lord, speak to us today. What a joy it is to be together. Uh, love this faith family. Love what you're doing uh, in this faith family. And we're convinced this is your word, so speak to us. Holy Spirit, come and teach us. Um, inspire us and challenge us um, with the life of a mission that you have called us to. All to the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray, God's people said. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It was a grueling 500 miles from Sydney to Melbourne, Australia, which was the length of the longest and hardest marathon ever before. In fact, in 1983, uh, professional runners from all over the world came together in Sydney to attempt this inaugural event. And man, they were all decked out in their professional running gear. They had their Nike shirts on and their running shoes, and they were all ready for the race until something strange happened. Up to the starting line walked a 61-year-old man. His name was Cliff Young. And what made this strange was the fact that he, he wasn't wearing professional running gear. He had on Oshkosh overalls. 
work boots with rubber galoshes over them. In fact, the other runners at the starting line looked at Cliff and they honestly, they thought it was some kind of a joke. And when the crowd realized that he was actually there to run, they started laughing and mocking. And then when the race started, the the runners took off into the distance, but Cliff was standing there at the starting line, taking off his overalls and his boots. And then the crowd burst into laughter when he started to run. Because he ran with a limp, like this. So nobody gave him a chance. He's too old, he's too unprofessional, he runs funny. So you can imagine their surprise when Cliff not only finished the race, he actually won the race. But he didn't just win by a few seconds or a few minutes. Cliff won by almost 10 hours. I know. That's how all of Australia felt. How in the world can a 61-year-old man who has never run a marathon in his life accomplish such an amazing victory? You see, what they didn't know was that Cliff lived on a farm. He had lots and lots of acres. What he didn't have was a horse or a four-wheel drive. And so when it came time to gather up all the cattle, he would run, and he would run, and he would run, sometimes running for days. He'd built up something none of the other runners had. Endurance. In fact, when the professional runners ran for 18 hours and slept for six, Cliff never stopped running. Cliff Young ran for five days, 15 hours and four minutes without ever stopping to sleep. He didn't win because he'd been trained. He won because he knew how to endure. Endurance. It's what a life on mission is all about. Look at me, faith family. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't throw in the towel. Can we be honest this morning? It's good to be honest at church. There are times in the Christian life where you just want to say, forget it! Quit the marriage. Abandon the faith. Give in to the sin. It would be so much easier to just stop. But a life on mission endures. In fact, think about the, the, the metaphors in the New Testament that Paul uses. Get this in your brain. Share in the sufferings as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. A hardworking farmer ought to have the share of the crops. Fight the good fight of faith. In a race, all runners run. 
Only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. I do not box as one beating the air. I worked harder than any, not I, but the grace of God in me. In other words, faith family, how does Paul view the Christian life? What do those metaphors show us? It's a fight. It's a race. It's hard work. It's something that requires endurance. And Paul not only taught that, Paul lived that. And it's precisely what we see in Acts 13 and 14. Look at chapter 13, verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had gone, and, and they had John to assist with him. Now, so here's the first leg of the journey. Notice it on the screen. They're going to leave Seleucia over by Antioch, that is home base Antioch. They're going to sail to the island of Cyprus and they're going to work their way all the way from the eastern end to the western end in Paphos. And it's there in Paphos that they're going to encounter the first kind of opposition that Luke records, verse 6. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus, this magician, that's what his name meant, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Do you remember back in Acts 8? Remember when Philip went out on mission, a life on mission? What did he encounter? A magician. Remember his name was Simon? Simon the magician. And you remember we told you then that a magician, in these days, it's not rabbit out of a hat. It's not David Copperfield kind of stuff. It's a sorcerer. It's someone who's doing evil. Uh, these are, these are demonic-type powers that uh, the mission's coming across. So, so why does Luke even include this in the story? It's because of this. As the mission goes out, you always face spiritual warfare. Okay, it's a reality. Now notice what Paul doesn't have very nice things to say about this guy in verse 9. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, so he gave him that look, and said, You son of the devil. How's that for politically correct? <laughs> I just want to imagine how Paul would be viewed in America. Right? Hey, I'm looking at you, you son of a devil. Anyways, keep reading. You enemy of all, of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now we read that and we think, well, that's not very loving, right? I mean, Paul, didn't your mother teach you? If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Here's the deal. Uh, when you're dealing with false teaching, when you're dealing with false teachers, when you're dealing with the spirit of Antichrist, you don't have time for kumbaya. This is serious. This isn't patty cake. We're not playing in a sandbox. This is life and death. This is eternity. And sometimes rebuke is the most loving thing you can do. Now notice who wins this little encounter. Verse 11, now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. You will be blind, unable to see the sun for a time, and immediately mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed, insert, gates of hell will not prevail. We've seen that throughout Acts. When he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Here's the point. You ready? First lesson we learn is this. 
A life on mission must endure spiritual opposition. A life on mission must endure spiritual opposition. You see, dear friends, I'm afraid that sometimes we as Christians have forgotten that we're in a war. That you are daily living in a spiritual battlefield. And we see conflict in relationships. We see battle with parent and children. We see people who are even fighting sometimes depression and a lot of difficult things in life. And there's all these things going on. You think about even terrorism. And we think sometimes that our war is just against flesh and blood, but it's not. It's against powers and principalities that we don't even see. Do you realize every day you're in the middle of that warfare? It's like that old far side cartoon. Do you remember those two deer that are standing beside one another and one has that target on his chest and the other one looks at him and says this, the caption reads, bummer of a birthmark, Hal. <laughs> right? But we laugh at that, but here's the truth. You received that same birthmark when you were born again. When you became a child of God, you became forgiven and hated at the same time. And you're in that battle every single day. But can I encourage you this morning, based on Acts 13, greater is he that's in you than he that is in the world. Amen? Amen. But the mission will face spiritual opposition. And yet, in the face of this spiritual opposition, Paul and Barnabas kept running their race. Luke then tells us they go on the second leg of this journey. You'll notice it here on the map. They're going to leave the island of Cyprus. They're going to go up to Pamphylia, and they'll make their way up to the region of Pisidia to a place called Antioch. Now, this is not home base Antioch. This is a different one. And here they're going to face a different kind of persecution. Here's what they do. Uh, this is a common pattern in Acts, particularly with Paul. He's going to go to a synagogue. And a synagogue is going to provide an opportunity to have a conversation, to have a, a public forum to proclaim something. In fact, Paul and Barnabas will go there and somebody will say, Hey, open mic night, testimony time. Does anybody have a word of encouragement? Paul and Barnabas look at each other and say, we're going to jump at this opportunity. Me, 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 me. Paul jumps up and he preaches a sermon. You can read it this afternoon. Verse 16 all the way through 41. And here's the gist of his sermon. In fact, it's not going to surprise you if you've seen the other sermons in the book of Acts. Paul shows them how Jesus is the fulfillment of of everything promised in the Old Testament. Let me show you his conclusion in verse 32. We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, there it is, all his promises in the Old Testament, this he has fulfilled to us, their children. How? By raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So, they go to a synagogue, the opportunity to preach Jesus, share Jesus. He's the fulfillment of the whole Testament. And the people love it. They can't get enough. They're like the 1115 service at Berean. We don't care about lunch. Football. Who needs football? 
We want to hear more about the gospel. We want to hear more about Jesus. We can't get enough, Paul, of what you're saying. And then Facebook and Twitter explodes about a meeting that they're going to have the next Sabbath when Paul and Barnabas are going to show back up and do it again. And they did. And here is how they responded, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Isn't that awesome? Man, Lives are being transformed by the power of the gospel. The mission is spreading and lives are being changed. But I have learned this in almost 20 years of ministry. Ain't everybody happy. Ain't everybody happy. Verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the District. Now, when I grew up, the translation of that verse was the deacons got together and ran the pastor out, right? They start stirring up division among the people. Here's the point right here. A life on mission must endure personal opposition. Not just spiritual opposition, but personal opposition as well. Faith family, hear me this morning. If we're going to take the mission of Jesus seriously, they're going to say things about you. Are y'all with me this morning? They're going to say things about you. They may call you a zealot. They may call you narrow-minded. They may call you intolerant. And I'm not talking about being a jerk for Jesus because there are some of those. I'm talking about just being faithful to the Word of God. They will say things about you and for some of us, we care so much about our identity and what people think about us that we will be tempted to quit. I remember some time ago I was asked to speak at a, at a community gathering and the topic was going to be on leadership. That's what my PhD is in, is in leadership. And so I was going to be one of the speakers that was going to, what are you going to preach a sermon? I go, I wasn't going to like open your Bibles, I was just going to talk about leadership. Well, when the names came out as to who the speakers were going to be, um, thanks to the joy of social media, uh, some of the people found out who I was, and uh, they found out that I was a pastor. But then it got even worse. Uh, they found out I was a Baptist pastor. <laughs> Ooh. I mean, it's like, oh, no. And uh, a certain individual started stirring up some things among the leaders and guess who got canceled from the program? The Baptist pastor. You're going to have to endure personal opposition. If you're going to take this thing seriously of being a Christian in America, you will face some personal opposition. And yet, in the face of personal opposition, Paul and Barnabas kept running their race. Now, what was the source of this personal opposition? Why are they stirring up all of this slander against Paul and Barnabas to get them run out of town? Answer, theology. Paul and Barnabas are going into synagogues. They're preaching the gospel of grace to who? 
Jewish leaders, religious people, people who had the inability of doing two things quickly. Number one is they did not understand how the storyline of the Old Testament fit into Jesus. In other words, how Jesus was the fulfillment. That's why Paul preaches what he does. And people still do that today. This is what religion does. It turns the Bible into moral lessons, right? David was brave. You go be brave. Ruth found a husband by laying down next to a man in the middle of the night. You find a husband. Oh, that's not a good example. So... Forget I said that. But that's that's kind of what people do. They take these stories and they turn them into moral lessons rather than seeing that all of these things are pointing you to a person and it's all about him. If your pursuit of the Bible is not contributing to your pursuit of Jesus, then you're using it for religious purposes. But here's the other thing that really hacked off all the religious leaders is that Paul and Barnabas are preaching the gospel, which is this. You ready? You can't save you. Only God saves you. Let me put it this way. Your goodness does not contribute one bit to your salvation. You see, these religious leaders were so consumed with the law, they thought their obedience to the law mattered in making them right before God. That's not the gospel. The law only exposes your inability, and salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Just so you don't think I'm making that up, look at verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, that is Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, here it is, and by him, everyone who believes, faith, is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And here's what religious people can't stand to hear. You cannot do anything to contribute to your salvation. Because we feel like it's got to count for something, right? And and here's how it gets fleshed out sometimes. You'll go through suffering in your life, and here's what you'll think. Why did that happen to me? After all, look at all I've done for you. This is an exchange relationship, God. And Paul said to Israel... God took you out of Egypt. God protected you in the wilderness. God raised up David. The only thing you contributed to your salvation was the sin part. God did everything else. Now you may think that doing ministry in Minnesota that we wouldn't have to worry about this preaching to religious people. Because we're not the Bible Belt. Now listen, I grew up. I grew up in Tennessee Uh, I grew up in the Bible Belt. I know the Bible Belt. And you might think, well, but up here, that wouldn't be an issue. This was astounding to me. Did you know that Minnesota has the most megachurches per capita than anywhere in the U.S.? The most megachurches per capita than anywhere in the U.S. 
which means this, we got a lot of Christianity. We got a lot of Bible. But here's the question, do we understand the gospel? Because I hear from people all the time, and trust me, this isn't no like glorified Berean because we have our own problems, amen? But this is what I hear from people. I visited 20 churches. I visited 30 churches. And what I don't hear is thus saith the Lord. What I don't hear is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which means I think I am doing synagogue evangelism. I'm showing up every week in a religious facility and proclaiming likely to a lot of religious people you can't do a thing to save you it is but by the grace of God and yet in the face of theological opposition Paul and Barnabas kept running their race now there's one more opposition in verse 13 before we jump to verse 14 Look at chapter 13, verse 13. It says, Now Paul and his companions set sail to Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So what's up with this? I mean, did John have like a medical emergency? Did he forget his Bible back in Cyprus? I mean, what, what in the world's going on? And here's the answer. He quit. He quit. Now you say, how do you know that, smarty pants? Um, this is going to be really insightful. I read Acts 15. <laughs> do you know what happens in Acts 15? Paul and Barnabas are going to split. Do you remember why they split? Because Paul refuses to take John Mark because he quit on them the last time. Here's the point. A life on mission is also going to have to endure relational opposition. Come here for a moment. Some of you know what I'm talking about, don't you? You're married to an unbelieving spouse. You're one of the only believers at your workplace. There was a day when you could look around your life and there were people with you, arm in arm, linked together, running for Jesus. And that chain has gotten shorter and shorter and shorter. I have talked to some of you who are single, and the reason that you're single is because you refuse to compromise your faith just to get a date. And what you know is what Paul and Barnabas knows. Sometimes the mission can be a lonely, lonely place. And it makes you want to crawl up under the covers and quit. And yet in the face of relational opposition, Paul and Barnabas keep running their race. Now in chapter 14, the last opposition that they face. Verse 1, they end up in Iconium. They're going to be run out of town. You notice here on the screen... They're going to go down from Antioch to Iconium. And then in Iconium, they'll be run out of town to a place called Lystra. Now, where were they before Lystra? Antioch and Iconium. Keep that in mind as you look at verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Huh. 
Having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Now, why did I emphasize they left Antioch and Iconium and went to Lystra? Because of this. Jews followed him a hundred miles just to stone him. And they stoned him so bad, they supposed he was dead. So they drug him outside the city, and they left him for dead. And what is Paul's response? I quit. Mama. It's too hard. No, verse 20. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. You're kidding. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. What? Paul gets stoned. Not that kind of stoned. The one with rocks. <laughs> the very next day travels 60 miles. Are you kidding me? Paul, like you look like Rocky after the Russian dude has pounded your face. You're like the Black Knight in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. You got no arms. Ah, it's just a flesh wound. Really? Take a vacation. Take a sabbatical. At least take a nap. And yet... He keeps going, and where does he go? Verse 21, and when they had preached the gospel to the city and had made many disciples, you have to be kidding. They returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. Translations to the place where the people want him dead. What's the point? A life on mission must also endure physical opposition. A life on mission must endure physical opposition. Now, faith family, I'm thankful that in America, um, typically Christians are not persecuted physically. But you need to understand this. That is rare historically. Because I think we are all well, well aware of the fact that there are places around the world where Christians are. And yet, in the face of physical opposition, Paul and Barnabas keep running their race. They come full circle. As they'll travel back to Pamphylia, they'll set sail back to the home base, Antioch. And here's what they do in verse 27. When they arrived, they gathered the church together. They declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. At this point, we could say, you know, it's likely, very, very, very likely that we will not face all of that kind of opposition. But you will face some. Let me say it this way. The only way you won't face it is if you're not on mission. 
And if you're anything like me, you'd say this, ain't no way I'm that disciplined. I can't lose 10 pounds. I can't save 10 bucks. I can't even pray for 10 minutes, much less endure the kinds of things that I may have to endure. And here's my encouragement to you. I know you can't. And neither can I. Because endurance in the mission of Jesus is not about discipline. It's about three things. I'll give them to you quickly. Number one is this. Paul and Barnabas was able to endure because they had a perspective about life. Verse 22 of chapter 14. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them what? To continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. In other words, here's the point. Please get this. They knew from the very beginning this wasn't going to be easy. You see, here's what I've discovered. I've discovered that often the reason for our frustration in life is because of unmet expectations. Would you agree? You expected that the marriage was going to be this, but it was something else. You expected that the job was going to be this, and it was something else. You expected that the church would be this, and it was something else. Or you expected that the Christian life would be this, and you got something else. So why don't we just quit all the fake talking? It's going to be hard. In fact, Paul goes back to disciples who are brand new Christians and he teaches them Christianity 101. What is that? Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Get your expectations right on what it's going to be to be a Christian on mission today. Here's the second thing. It's not just a perspective on life, but a perspective on God. Now, I don't have the time to go back to this story that I skipped. If you want to read it this afternoon uh, during uh, commercial breaks of your football game, uh, it starts in chapter 14, verse 12, and you can read it. But here's the paraphrase of it, so, so listen here for just a moment. Paul and Barnabas are in Lystra. And there's a man who's crippled from birth that's healed. And... The people start worshiping Paul and Barnabas. They're bringing uh, sacrifices and all these things and laying them at their feet. Paul and Barnabas have no idea what's going on because they're speaking in their native language and they don't understand. And the reason that they're doing all of this, and, and eventually Paul and Barnabas will get it, but the reason they're doing it is because there was an old legend in Lystra that Zeus and his son Hermes had once visited them in person, but they were not received except by just like a couple of families. So what Zeus and Hermes did is they wiped out almost everybody. So when Paul and Barnabas heal a man, everybody in Lystra thinks, this is Zeus and Hermes again. What happened to the last group? They died. So get your sacrifices together. We don't want to die like they did. So let's start worshiping Paul and Barnabas. And when Paul and Barnabas understand what they're doing, he proclaims a specific message. I wish I had 45 more minutes, but it's so awesome. Now, 
Why are they worshiping Paul and Barnabas? Fear. They don't want to die. What does Paul proclaim? Verse 15 of chapter 14. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men. In other words, we're not gods. We're of nature like you. And we bring you good news, unlike what you believe, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet, here it is. You with me? Yet, he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good. By giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Do you see the contrast? What are they doing? No, you need to understand the true and living God is a good God. He gives fruit. He gives rain. He gives chocolate cake. Prime rib, medium, juice flowing in your mouth. He's given you good things. And on top of all that, He has given you His Son. What's the point? They are motivated by fear. Paul and Barnabas is motivated by the goodness of God. Meaning... Paul and Barnabas can endure anything because they know in everything God is gracious. Get your perspective on God right. Beat me to an inch of my life. Quit and go back to Jerusalem. Stir up false things about me. It won't change my view that God is good. Get your perspective on life right. It ain't going to be easy. But even in the hard, long race, God is good. You don't need discipline. You need a right view of God. And one more thing. And I think it may be the ultimate thing. And I just want you to listen. It won't even be on the screens. To a pattern that has gone throughout chapter 13 and 14. Just listen. Are you listening? Chapter 13, verse 5. And they proclaimed the word of, the God, the word of God in the synagogues. Chapter 13, verse 32. We bring to you the good news. Chapter 13, verse 44. The next Sabbath, the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Chapter 14, verse 7. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Chapter 14, verse 15. We bring you good news. Chapter 14, verse 21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city. Do you see a pattern? And here's the point that just makes me want to leap out of my skin. Perseverance for the gospel comes when you're preoccupied with the gospel. In other words, your endurance fades because your affections for Jesus have cooled. You run when you can't get enough of Jesus. 
Come on, let, 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 me, let me let you into my life. There are days during the week when this thing ain't come together and it's hard. And I'm thinking, how in the world am I going to get in front of people? You think I do this because it's my job? You think I do this because I, I just like to laugh? You think I do this because I want you entertained? I get here because I haven't gotten over the gospel. I believe the good news of Jesus is the greatest news in all the world. And there are weeks that's the only thing that gets me through. You run when you can't get enough of Jesus. It's what turned a former Pharisee born and bred in legalism into a missionary willing to give life and limb. For the gospel. In fact, here's what he says to the elders at Ephesus in Acts 20. But I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself if only I may finish my course. The ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, what was that, Paul? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Faith family. Endurance does not come through disciplined determination. It comes through gospel preoccupation. So I ask you, what makes you want to give up? Where are you at right now? What is that thing that you're facing that makes it so easy to just say, I Look at me. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. I know the race can be long. I know the race can be hard. But I want you to remember the greatest marathon ever won. And let me tell you, it's not the one from Sydney to Melbourne. It was the one from Jerusalem to Calvary. Do you remember when just a 33-year-old Jewish carpenter showed up on that day and was brought before the people and they laughed and they mocked and they thought he was a joke? And you can imagine their surprise when he not only finished the race, but he won the greatest victory that has ever been won when he defeated death and the grave. You say, well, how could a Jewish carpenter win such an incredible victory? I'll tell you. Because he ain't just a carpenter. He was and he is the very Son of God who for the joy set before him endured a cross. So when you're tired and you want to throw in the towel, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And no matter what you face, keep running your race. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, I am but a man. I don't know every heart in this place today. I don't know where they're at in their race. I don't know where they're at in their journey with you.
but the beauty is you're their creator and you do. So would you send your spirit now to meet us right where we are? Some at that point of quitting. Some have never even stepped up to the starting line. Wherever we are in this journey, in this race, God, would you come and, and just challenge us, reveal to us by your grace how we can continue to run. Fuel our affections for you that we may endure till the end. That's my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.